We are in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14, and last week, uh, if you were here, it was a great Sunday in the Lord. God was moving in our midst, and my prayer is that He will do that again today. Verse 26 is where we're going to break in. Jesus has just presented Himself as the Passover lamb. He's used the, the Passover supper as an opportunity to present Himself as God's hope for our sins to be passed over in Christ, and, and now they're uh, departing uh, that scene, and they're going out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 26 and following. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing too. They came to a place named Gethsemane and He said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come to temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him, had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you. In the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would give us understanding of your word today. Lord, we've, we've already heard from you. We've already heard your word this morning. We've, we've just read it. And now we ask, God, that, that somehow 
you would take this earthen vessel, God, this clay vessel, and Lord, that you would allow that I would get out of the way and that you would speak through me. Lord, that, that you would aid me in giving understanding to what you have said. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has presented himself as the Passover lamb, and now the disciples set out for the Mount of Olives, the mountain upon which, by the way, we are promised in the Old Testament, Jesus the Messiah will return in victory, and he will vanquish his enemies and deliver his people on the day of the Lord. And so he, is a, he and his disciples set out for the Mount of Olives singing a hymn, apparently singing of the power of God or the promises of God. They're singing about how great their God is. And then Jesus interrupts the singing, or after they sing, he says, I want to get back to the theme of betrayal and abandonment. Such a contrast. The disciples declaring how great their God is, and God in their midst saying, you will all fall away. The sheep will scatter when the father strikes his son, he tells them in verse 27. Just as the prophet Zechariah foretold in chapter 13, verse 7. The word fall away comes from the word from which we get the word scandal in English, or to scandalize. You see, when following the Son of God means following Him to a cross, Jesus says all the disciples will lose their resolve, their heart. They will abandon Jesus. And the point that Jesus is making is it is scandalous to follow Jesus only when it is comfortable or it is convenient. It's a scandal. And it's in fact what all of the disciples would do. God would deliver His Son to death to pay for sin, and the Son would be abandoned by the sinners that He came to save. Christ alone is qualified to save, and salvation would come from the Son alone. Only the Son could stand in our place. We couldn't stand alongside of Him. It had to be Christ alone. You see, in verse 23, all drink of the cup. In verse 31, all insist they will not fall away. But by verse 50, all have left him and fled. You say, Daniel, why did you cover so much text this morning? Because it all hangs together in the supper. They all dip with Christ. They all partake of the same cup and say, we're with you, Jesus. In verse 31, they say, we're with you, Jesus. And by verse 50, when he is arrested, they all fall away. The son will suffer alone. This passage teaches us that the disciples are utterly useless in supporting Jesus in his work of saving sinners. The disciples contribute nothing to their salvation but their unfounded overconfidence and arrogance while Jesus humbly gives his all. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus denies himself and obeys the Father at a great cost. You see, on either side of the garden, the discussion is the abandonment of Jesus by his disciples. First, Jesus predicts it, and they say, no way, and then they do deny him. And then in the middle of this discussion of the abandonment of Jesus is the resolve of Jesus to follow the Father's will no matter what it costs him. And what we learn in this passage by way of the disciples' negative example and by way of Christ's faithfulness in the face of death, 
are these things. And I know you don't have notes printed for you, so I'll move slowly. To follow a crucified Savior. There's four things we've, we've got to see in this text. First, and I'll hit these again as we go. But first, we must not put confidence in ourselves. Secondly, we must trust in the Son who never failed to do the will of His Father. Thirdly, our will to serve our flesh must be crucified with Jesus. And finally, we must follow Jesus in the power of His resurrection. And if you didn't get all those, it's alright. We're going to go right through them one by one. So the first point that we see in this text is that we must not put confidence in ourselves. We see that in verses 26 through 31. And in these verses, what Mark is showing us is the futility of our flesh. We can boast of what we think we will do when it costs us to follow Jesus, but when it really costs you to follow Jesus, your flesh is futile. It is useless. It is worthless. You must have the power of the Holy Spirit to lead you to follow Him in seasons when it costs you to follow Christ. We can be like Peter, comparing ourselves to others, but boasting and comparison are no substitute for faithfulness to Christ when it costs you something. In verse 29, Peter compares what he thinks he will do with what he assumes others will do. And church, the, me the moment that we measure our faithfulness to God by favorably comparing ourselves to others, we've wrongly placed confidence in ourselves. That's not how you're faithful to Christ. Well, there's a bunch of other people who aren't as faithful as I am, so that makes me faithful. No, the standard is not what everybody else is doing. The standard is Christ who goes into the garden and bears the sin of the world for you in the power of the Spirit. The standard God calls us to cannot be met by comparison. It's of no use to walk into a congregation with your nose held high, looking around for the people that you're better than. Because you're still infinitely lesser than the Christ who had to die to rescue you. The standard can only be met in Christ. Jesus tries to set Peter straight in verse 30. In a long, long sentence in the Greek, he says, Literally, truly, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, which only Peter mentions that he's going to crow twice. I mean, only Mark mentions the crow will crow twice. Me, you yourself, three times. So what, do you, what are you saying, Jesus? What are you saying? The last word in the sentence is, will deny. He builds this anticipation. What is it that Peter's going to do? Well, you will deny me. Deny means to disown or to reject or to, or to denounce. In verse 31, Peter still doesn't get the message. He insists, even if I've got to die with you, even if we're bound together in death, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples join in the chorus of protesting that surely they will not abandon Jesus. You see, church, an affinity for Jesus is not the same thing as an allegiance to Jesus. Soon they will be living demonstrations of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. 
Church, there's only one way to follow Christ, and Paul tells us about it in Philippians chapter 3. It is to glory not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus, and to put no confidence in our flesh. If Jesus, who has sinless flesh, does not put confidence in his own flesh in the garden, then who are we to put confidence in ourselves? No matter the appearances, no matter how forcefully we protest, we have no power in ourselves to live for Christ. Christ did not come to tweak our lives. He came to transform them from the inside out. He didn't come just to repair our lives. He came to resurrect them from their deadness in trespasses and sins. And for Christ's death to count in our place Jesus had to obey the Father as a man. That's important. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is not cheating. He's not flexing his God muscles. He's not like Superman with the big S behind it. He obeys in the Garden as we have to obey. Otherwise, his obedience couldn't count for humanity. But as a man, Jesus surrenders His will to the will of the Father in the garden. In the garden, we must see Jesus as our substitute in action. We must trust in the Son who never failed to do the will of His Father. We must trust in the Son who never failed to do the will of His Father. We we have failed God, have we not? We have said things and done things and thought things that displeased God. We've come up to the point of pressure where it would cost us to follow Christ or to do the right thing. And we've done the wrong thing. But Jesus, faced with the sin and the weight of the world on His shoulders, still bows to the will of His Father so that He could rescue sinful humanity. In Isaiah 53.10, we read the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief if He would render Himself As a guilt offering. In other words, if Jesus would willingly offer Himself, then we could be rescued from sin and death. Jesus enters Gethsemane knowing He must offer Himself as the atoning sacrifice for sin. We know this because of what He said at Passover. But suddenly, He is overcome by the magnitude of what lies before Him. He leaves behind most of the disciples, takes along the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. You know, the self-proclaimed champions. James and John who argue, which one of us gets to be greatest in the kingdom of God? Peter who's just said, I'll die with you, even if all these other crazy guys don't go with you. I'll go with you. So he's got the inner circle, the, the, the heroes of the faith, going with him into the garden. Surely they'll be able to stay awake and Keep watch for the soon arriving arresting party, right? Perhaps there's another way. Perhaps the son who is sinless doesn't actually have to die. Maybe he can appeal to his father and the father will find a way to take the cup from him. So you just stay here and watch out because we don't know what might happen in the prayer room. Maybe, just maybe, there's a way and you need to be on the alert. The intensity of the language that comes, however must not be missed. Three times Jesus has confidently predicted His death and His resurrection, but here in the valley beneath the Mount of Olives, Jesus is distressed and troubled, verse 32. In verse 33, His soul is deeply grieved or overcome with sorrow to the point of death. You can't say it any more strongly in the Greek. He is is alarmed. 
he is arrested, he is overwhelmed by what he is facing. What's going on here, church? Jesus, who has marched so confidently to the cross in chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, he said, I'm going to die. He essentially says the same thing at the Passover meal. And suddenly, this King of glory, this Son of God, collapses onto the earth in prayer so that the whole ordeal before him might somehow be avoided. What is it that is weighing down even the King of of glory. What is it that is driving him to the ground in prayer? It is not, church, that Jesus is afraid to die. He is life. He is the Lord of life. He knows he will be raised. In verse 28, he says he will be raised. He's not afraid to die. What Jesus does not want to face is not the torment of the cross, but the hour of God's wrath poured out on him, verse 35, in which the cup, verse 36, of God's wrath will be poured out upon him. Jesus does not pray that the cross would be removed from him. He prays that the cup of God's wrath would be removed from him. As Aiken writes, the cup was not the physical pain that he would endure on the cross. No, the cup that so distressed and troubled him was the spiritual suffering he would endure as he would bear the sins of the world and drink to the last drop the fierce wrath of God as our substitute. Jesus, the innocent, spotless Lamb of God, would bear God's wrath and it drives Him to the ground. He would pay the price for sin and stand in the place of sinners. And there He is praying, crying out on the ground, agonizing over what is to come. Can you imagine being entirely innocent and willingly standing before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in the entire world for all times? When's the last time you thought about the wrath of God due your sin? When's the last time you thought about Jesus buckling under its weight? If you think the wrath of God and alienation from the Father is no big deal, then see the Son of God who commanded even the wind and the waves to obey Him pressed to the ground by the unbearable weight of the cup which is before Him. Keller summarizes what's going on in the heart of Jesus in this way. Jesus turns to the Father and all He can see before Him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. Jesus began to experience the cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when He became separated from His Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that, and He staggered. And if it caused Jesus to stagger in the garden, how much more ought we to be overwhelmed with gratitude for the sin that He bore in our place? Jesus' internal anguish over facing God's wrath was infinitely greater even than the momentary anguish of the mocking and the scourging and the spikes and the thorny crown. We watched the movie, The Passion of Christ. We talk about the 39 lashes and how horrible that must have been. But there was no horror greater to Christ our King than facing the wrath of God for you. Jesus clearly understands Himself to be the Son of God. He cries out to His Father, Abba. 
Abba, not a word typically voiced in Hebrew prayers. It's a term of intimate boldness. Jesus knows that He's the Son of God. And yes, the Father, verse 36, can do all things, but He cannot cease to be holy. Which means He cannot save sinners without the penalty for sin being paid. Which means Jesus must die. If Jesus gives in to the temptation to assert His own will and save Himself, we are all lost. Before Jesus would pay the price with His body on the cross, He must first pay the price of submission to the Father in the garden. Before we can be saved by Jesus' blood, we must first be rescued by His obedience. To show us how incredible the submission of Jesus is to the Father, we are invited to contrast it with the sleepiness of His disciples. In verse 37, the disciples are snoozing. Jesus calls Peter, did you get it? Did you see it there in the text? He doesn't call Peter, Peter. He calls Peter, Simon. Because right now, Peter is no rock of the faith. He's asleep at the wheel. They had a long day of Passover preparations. They had enjoyed wine and a meal together. They've made the short trip from Jerusalem to the to Gethsemane, their eyes are heavy, verse 40, they cannot stay awake, they are sleeping, and they have no answer for their slumber, verse 40. You see, church, before Peter betrays Jesus three times with his words, he betrays him three times by surrendering to his weariness. Don't get weary in the faith. Don't get weary following Jesus, going in your own strength, in your own power, the flesh will fail. But if you watch and if you pray, God will strengthen you in the inner man by His Spirit. Like the disciples, when things get tough, we are tempted to walk our own way or to go to sleep assuming that God's will is for our comfort rather than for conforming us to Christ. But praise God, Jesus' will to obey the Father is greater than His will to serve Himself. Can you imagine the temptation that Jesus faced? He's God. He didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't deserve to face the wrath of the Father, but He has entered into time and space and humanity, and here He is. He doesn't want to endure the wrath of God on your behalf. He would rather not endure the separation from the Father. And guess what? He's entitled to not want to do that. We're not entitled to not obey God. We're not God. We're sinners. But here's Christ in the garden. He's God. He could create a beach and go rest on it. He could do whatever He wanted to do. And when confronted with the reality of what is before Him, how is it that He obeys the Father? He does it by watching Himself and praying, praying, praying that God would allow Him to have His will to serve self, not overtake His will to serve His Father. Where the disciples fail and where we fail, Jesus does not. He submits to the Father and endures alienation from Him so that we could be reconciled to the Father. And I I want you to see what's going on here, church. Y'all are a little bit sleepy this morning. I think it's the rain. I don't know what's going on. But I, I want you to see what's going on in this text right now. It's amazing. You remember the first garden? All the way back in Genesis 1 and 2? Remember what happened? Adam's fellowship with God was broken When he said what? God, not your will, but mine. 
But you see what happens in verse 36. We're now in the garden of Gethsemane where olives are grown to be pressed down to make oil to refresh humanity. And we have the king of glory and the son of God in Gethsemane, the second and greater Adam who is in the garden who says, if necessary, if necessary for my fellowship to be broken with you so that their fellowship can be restored, then not my will, Father, but yours. Adam had every reason to obey the Father and he didn't. Jesus had every reason to abandon the Father and he didn't so that he could rescue you. We must understand that Jesus obeys as a man to redeem sinful men and women. And in verse 38, the key verse of the whole passage, Jesus says, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. How is it that we don't succumb to temptation? We watch and we pray. We watch our fleshly tendency to want to seek self and we pray that God would enable us by His Spirit's power to do whatever it takes to live for Christ. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. To desire to do what the Father wills, Jesus keeps on persisting in watchfulness and prayer. Matthew tells us it's three times that He goes to pray. Three times the disciples are asleep. Three times Jesus prays. As he faces the hour of God's wrath, the disciples can't even stay awake. Do you see it there in verse 37? One hour. Jesus knows the flesh. Even his sinful, sinless flesh is weak. But the Spirit is eager to do the will of the Father and to glorify the Son. If Jesus must drink the cup, if He must know the horror of searching the sky and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then He must do it in the power of the Spirit. He must rely upon the Spirit who leads Him to, de- to desire not self-preservation, but salvation, which comes through self-denial and submission to God's will. Church, if the Son submits to the Father for us, then why can't we joyously submit to the Son as well? We can. Only by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. At this moment, with everything on the line, Jesus obeys as a man in the power of the Spirit so that His obedience may count in your place. Behold the power of Spirit-enabled submission. Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane weighed down by the thought of bearing our sin. But look at the end of the passage there in Gethsemane. He walks out telling His disciples, Get up. It's time. I'm ready. Because in the hour of prayer, God and Jesus have worked together, have talked together, and the Holy Spirit is now enabling the Son to obey in His power and to go to the cross for the joy set before Him. When the time of betrayal comes, the clubs and the swords are unnecessary. The King has already surrendered. His will has already been arrested by that of the Father. He will face the cross for you and for me. It is the will of the Father to kill His beloved Son so that He will not have to kill you or me. Jesus will drink the cup of God's wrath so that you can drink of the cup of His salvation. His submission to the Father is your salvation. He surrenders in the garden so that we can enter His garden. 
As Paul later writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Gethsemane, Jesus willed to become sin on your behalf so that you wouldn't have to face God's wrath. But that only happens, church, if we get the third point. It only happens if we allow ourselves to be seized with Christ. You see, our will, our will to serve our flesh, point three, must be crucified with Jesus. Our will to serve our flesh must be crucified with Jesus. In order for our sin to become that sin which Jesus paid for, we must let our self-serving will be broken. In the garden, Jesus submits to the Father to be our sin-bearing substitute, but He also provides a model of what it looks like to live for Him. How can we submit to God for the glory of Christ and the progress of the gospel as Christ submitted to the Father for us? The answer is just below the surface in verses 43 through 52. And it is found in the repetition of the word seized. You see, aided by Judas's greed, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the scribes, have arranged for an arresting party to apprehend or to arrest or to seize Jesus. They don't have any stated charges because they don't care about the rule of law. When it comes to doing your will or the will of God, their only rule is preserving their own self-interest, their own power. And to do this, they want to seize Jesus. And so Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Now, it's not a holy kiss. It's not a common kiss. It's a, it's a grotesque kiss. It's the same kind of kissing of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet and was kissing his feet repeatedly. He's lavish in his betrayal. He's excessive in his betrayal. He's gone all in to say, oh, this Jesus is the one I'm going to betray. Judas, however, is just one player in the seizure of Jesus. We find the word seize in verse 44, 46, 49, and 51. The word doesn't just mean apprehending. It means to gain power over another, to bind someone and deprive them of their power. And here's the amazing thing. It's not Jesus who deserved to be deprived of his power. It's we who need to be deprived of our power. And so Jesus willingly goes to the cross so that your self-proclaimed power over your own life might be broken and you instead would have the power to live for Christ. Jesus allows himself to be seized and to die for sin so that he could seize you and make you someone who lives for God. Judas isn't the only one to betray Christ. Betrayal and abandonment come in many forms. Some, like Judas, are very flagrant about their betrayal. This extravagant kissing to mask his exceptional sin. But others are like Peter. They look like they are a champion for Jesus. They'll even cut off Malchus's ear, which we see in the Gospel of John that this is likely Peter cutting off the ear. They'll even defend Jesus right up to the point of his arrest. But the moment that Jesus is arrested and taken to the cross, they flee just the same. And then some are like the disciples who are in the background, but when Jesus is, flee, is seized, they all flee. And then we get this unusual account. 
the first known account of streaking in recorded human history. This man seems brave, does he not? I mean, we don't know why all he has is a linen sheet, but that doesn't stop him from following after Jesus. I mean, this is a hero in the text. He's, he's following Jesus. Everybody else has walked away. And here's a guy, all he's got is a linen sheet. And he's, he's chasing Jesus. But as soon as they seize him. As soon as following Jesus means that his will to save himself must be arrested. As soon as he's got to stop having the right of preserving himself and he has to abandon himself to the death of Christ, what does he do? Even he flees, leaving the sheet behind. Church, unless we die with Christ, we leave him naked and ashamed. It is not enough to follow in the path of Jesus as long as it suits us. It's not enough to ask, what would Jesus do? Because you first have to die with Jesus. You can't follow Jesus until you die in Jesus. Everything short of letting your self-serving will be cut and crucified with Christ, it is a game, it is a show, it is a betrayal, it is an abandonment of Christ that leaves you like Adam and Eve and like this man, naked and ashamed. To follow Jesus to Calvary, you must let Him crucify your selfishness. Finally. See, that's a lot about dying, Daniel. That's, that's pretty depressing. I mean, Jesus has been talking about dying and taking up the cross since chapter 8. And it just, He just keeps talking about, I gotta die. I gotta die. I gotta die. You do. You gotta die. But here's good news, church. He doesn't leave you dead. I skipped verse 28 intentionally. Verse 28, Jesus says, After I have been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. If you die in Christ, there's resurrection for you. The call to die is not the end of the story. Our will must be seized, but we are not left with nothing to live for and no power for living. In verse 28, Jesus gives a huge clue that His death is not the end of the story. He will be raised. He will go ahead of them to Galilee. Yes, His disciples will all fall away, but after He is raised, after He is raised, He will go ahead of them right back to the place that He first called them. He will give them a giant do-over. And they will die for Christ because they will know the power of His resurrection. Following Jesus is most certainly about dying, but it's also about living. When the disciples see a resurrected Jesus, everything changes. He ascends to the right hand of the Father where He's ruling and reigning in righteousness. He pours out His Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that gave Him strength to obey in the garden now is available to give you strength to truly live for God. The same Spirit that gave Jesus, the strength to face the wrath of God for you and for me, and who raised Jesus from the dead, will come and dwell in you. And Romans 8, 11 says, He will give life to your mortal bodies if you surrender to Christ. Have you died with Christ? Can you really say, no matter what it costs, no matter what preference I have to cancel 
no matter what it is that Christ would call me to do, I will abandon my will for the will of God. There's nothing like our new life in Christ. When you come to Jesus and die with Jesus, He doesn't leave you dead. He makes you truly alive. The Apostle Paul said it this way, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And they come in Christ, the Son who suffered alone. This morning, if you're still living for self, it's time to die. So you can truly live. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we love you. We thank you that in the garden you sweat drops of blood for not your own sin, but for mine. And God, we ask this morning that we would recognize how weak and boastful and arrogant the flesh is. And Lord, that if there's If there are areas in our lives where we're living in the flesh rather than in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would remind us that you have commanded us to pray and to be watchful because our flesh is weak, but the Spirit is strong. God, give us lives that are compelled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Give us the ability to lay down our will to live for Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.